Brethren, would you remain standing and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to posture our souls underneath your word and to consider what is beyond all imagination. Lord, we pray that the working of your spirit would be moving in our hearts, that we would grasp what you convey to us in your word, gladly receive it, and rejoice in you and adore you for your kindness and your love to us and the gift of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, would you please be seated. Well, if you were here this morning, this is the second installment of The Coughing Preacher, and I hope you'll continue to keep me in prayer that the Lord would help me to get through uh, this sermon. I'm so eager to preach this word to you. I never grow tired of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It is an astounding text. And I ask you to give attention to it as we now are going to read it together. You can find it on page 857 in your pew Bible. Hear God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth in Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless it to us. When folks think of the Christmas story, they inevitably think of this simple narrative here in Luke 2. It is simple. It's a straightforward telling of this move from Nazareth to Bethlehem and the lowly circumstances of Jesus' birth. However, simple does not mean simplistic. In fact, these seven verses contain some of the most astonishing truths in the whole of Scripture. One such truth is that the hand of God governs all creatures, actions, and things. He governs the decrees of the most dominant men in the earth like Caesar Augustus and when it might please him to tax people down to the deficiency in space for a poor family in a dinky little town. But if God's governance of all things great and small and matters among rich and poor and matters of time and location and physical space down to every little detail, if that were to blow your mind, the second mystifying truth here totally floors us. For what we see, brethren, in the Christmas story isn't just a birth in lowliness. It is the birth of Him who had no beginning, who is the everlasting God. It's the binding and swaddling cloths of Him who bound the chains of Pleiades and Orion's belt in the sky. This child who can't formulate words upholds the world by the word of His power. 
He is too weak and too dependent to survive the night without the care of his mother. And yet were he to withdraw his spirit, his own mother would perish. You see, the Son of God, who was God and with God in the beginning, who had glory with the Father before the world began, he is mystifyingly taken flesh. The one who fills all space, cannot be contained, is yet able to be laid in a manger. And He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the unchanging God, has yet in His flesh undergone change. That is, in the body formed for Him in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, He's gone from a zygote to an embryo to a tiny form in Mary's womb with a beating heart and developing organs and then to a fully formed baby with lungs ready to roar. Despite the claim of the song, No Crying He Makes, he cried like every other baby leaving the warmth and protection of the womb coming into this dark, harsh, destructive world which he has entered. Entered to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The incarnation of the Son of God is a mystery to be adored. O come, let us adore Him. He can say something about this mystery, and I'm going to try, but it leaves us declaring with Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Well, I've already highlighted two marvels in the passage. We're going to further spell them out and see two things. Providence and profundity. We begin with providence. Now, in Luke chapter 1, Luke has had us focus on lowly people an old priest and his barren wife, and this teenage girl, Mary, in this nowhere town. And while the world wouldn't stop to consider these people at all, they have visits from the angel Gabriel, and they hear declarations of God's great purposes for His people. But then suddenly in Luke 2, we move from the folks that everyone else would ignore to the bigwigs of the era, Caesar Augustus and the Syrian governor, Quirinius. And with the mention of these political leaders, not only are we noting that Luke is a historian when he's telling us the time, we're also being confronted with Jewish misery. For 600 years, or nearly so, God's people have been under the thumb of pagan foreign powers. Caesar is just the latest iteration. And the lengthy period of oppression really presses believers to wonder Will the hope, the redemption of Israel ever come? Well, when men like Caesar Augustus rule, who is a tyrant, all seems bleak. He gave himself the name Augustus, which means exalted or revere one. He doesn't think much of himself, as you can tell. Caesar is claiming a divine status as though he's the savior of the world. God's people knows that is a sham. But now we see that this proud man is used as putty in the hands of the real exalted one, God Himself. Augustus, likely motivated by greed, declares to count the people, and counting means taxing. 
But Luke wants us to understand that there's a decree behind the decree. That is, while man is reaching out in his money-grabbing ways, and that's nothing to bring comfort to the people of God, the Sovereign Lord is arranging matters for the Savior to come. Man is making his plans, doing his will, but God is establishing his steps to accomplish his purpose. Now that's not clear at all in the case of the inconvenience that initially unfolds. Because in these registrations, and note verse 2 tells us this is only the first registration under Quirinius' governorship, which means that hardship like taxes wasn't an occasional thing. It was a reoccurring matter. But in this registration, verse 3, each person had to go to his own town. What a pain, right? You've moved somewhere else, and now you've got to travel. And you can't just hop on the interstate and go the nearly 100 miles from Nazareth to a small little village outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. We're talking about a journey that would take five to seven days of walking. And yet, when people like us are prone to pout and to slander the likes of Caesar for his ridiculous decisions, we see something bigger is happening. Nothing in God's world happens by chance. Even the lot that falls into the lap, Proverbs 16.33 says, is every decision is from the Lord. Caesar's whims don't make the world go round. God is working. Well, what exactly is His work? It's this. It's getting the right man with the right woman who carries the right child to the right place at the right time. So now Luke shrinks us down from the governmental head honchos to what we might call the hometown folks. And we catch Joseph in verse 4, going up from Galilee from a town called Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, if we are attuned to God's Word thus far as we read it throughout the entire Old Testament, two words jump off the page. David and Bethlehem. We're waiting for the new David. 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, Ezekiel 34. We're waiting for the ruler from David's line to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. So anticipation is building. And as we consider the census and the challenge it was for Joseph, not to mention Mary, great with child, what we should already begin to see is that no detail, however small, however frustrating to our plans or our perceptions as to what ought to be happening, no detail is outside the control of God. God governs the movers and shakers of the world. He raises up kings. He brings them down. But His hand also attends to the persnickety little details about how counting people for taxes occurs in a Jewish hamlet so small it can even make a map. Now friends, why does this rule of God down to the details matter to you and to me? Well, when you feel like God has forgotten you, when He's missed His promise or so you think, when you feel that the world is full of rotten leaders, oppressive decisions, And every day is difficult. 
Look what have you see. God is ruling all. David once said in Psalm 31, My times are in your hand. Or as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes 3, a time that is a God-appointed time, there is a time for every matter under heaven. Never is our God negligent. Never does He ignore the needs of His people. Never is He off the throne. He brought Abraham's servant to the right spot to find a wife for Isaac. He sustained Joseph through all the terrors of Egypt that he might say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He carried baby Moses on really a little ark is what the word is in the Hebrew, right to Pharaoh's daughter that he would be protected. He just so happened to bring Ruth, a widowed foreign nobody, to a particular field, the field of Boaz, so that she would be protected and be the one in David's great family tree. He had a captured Israelite slave girl ripped from her home, stuck in the house of a Syrian general, tell that Syrian general who happened to have leprosy, oh, there's a prophet in Israel, and Naaman the Syrian was healed. He had a Persian king get insomnia at just the right moment to have the chronicles of his kingdom read to be reminded of Mordecai's saving intervention, right as Haman is about to walk in to have Mordecai put to death and Haman's evil is overturned. You see, in all these moments when tension fills the air, when lowly people need the help of God, the hand of God was upholding all things and He orchestrated blessing in adversity. Now friends, that doesn't mean that every afflicted believer will be snatched from every difficulty. That doesn't happen with Jesus' own parents. They have to do hard things, face hard burdens, and yet their hardships are not pointless. Life under God's world is not vain. It is directed by the hand of a loving, wise, and faithful Father who is doing what is best for His people. And He knows the way that we take. He knows our frame our weaknesses, our trouble. He keeps our tears. He numbers our, the, head, the hairs on our head. And He values us more than sparrows, though not even one of them can fall to the ground apart from His will. The point of all of this, brethren, is that while we face life in a fallen world full of trouble, and we don't always see what our Father is doing, He is accomplishing His holy will. And that will is for the glory of His name and the good of His people. Do you want comfort? Trust the Father when His providence mystifies you. Submit to Him. We have a record of thousands of years of biblical and church history to prove the faithfulness of God. So let us not be so quick to grumble, to doubt Him. Let us believe our Father's care is around us there no matter what we face. And we will never be forgotten. Now, Joseph and Mary... They've received an angelic announcement that they are not forgotten. They've been told of the child whom Mary carries in her womb, who he is and what he will do. But that doesn't, under, under, that doesn't mean they understood this moment entirely. You know, I think Joseph probably grasped something of the need to have absolute attentiveness to his wife because when he goes to this registration, she goes with him. The pregnancy, it's a blessing. Yes, she's carrying the Son of God but it's a burden. Folks in town knew that she and Joseph weren't married. 
they knew she had gone off to be with her cousin, her cousin Elizabeth, and she returned obviously pregnant. There were rumors going around. Jesus will one day be slandered as a child of sexual immorality. He wasn't. But the scene is tense. There's a social stigma with Mary. Mary treasured it all up in her heart. You remember Joseph thought initially of divorcing her quietly until the angel revealed, no, the child in her is of the Holy Spirit. So trusting God and loving Mary, Joseph stuck with her. And he's not going to leave her behind. He goes to be registered, verse 5, with Mary, his betrothed. One wonders if they remember the promise of Micah 5, the significance of Bethlehem and the ruler to be born. We can't know for sure. But what we do know is that God is bringing about the fulfillment of His purpose while yet giving His people difficulty. Think of the discomfort for Mary. Now, friends, we have no idea if she walked or if she rode a beast of burden, as many imagine it, whether she was walking or riding five to seven days of camping, walking and riding, when you're about to pop, would be very uncomfortable. And some immediately think, look, if I'm experiencing hardship, like walking 15 to 20 miles a day while nine months pregnant and sleeping on the ground and dealing with the elements, well, if I taste trouble like that, that cannot be the will of God. Wrong. While we're tempted to think that difficulties are a sign of God's absence, the Lord is actually ordained the difficulty for us and He's with us in the moment. He doesn't promise us, I'll save you from everything that's hard. He promises when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You see, brethren, God's ways here are mysterious. But surely this text shows us in the difficulty, the Lord is worthy of trust. He will sustain us and be with us in the sticky messes of life. And He will manifest His kindness to His people in remarkable ways. Because what is He doing with Joseph and Mary as they make it to Bethlehem? He's bringing the Redeemer into the world to save His people from their sins. Why is He doing that? Because He loves His people. And He will keep His Word. Behold, brethren, the marvel of the providence of God. And understand as we end this first point, the God of Joseph and Mary, that's our God. And He hasn't changed. But then we move from providence to profundity in verses 6 and 7. And we come now to this mysterious moment of Jesus' birth. Nearly every statement in verses 6 and 7 provokes deep thought. First, we hear verse 6. And while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. Now many as they have imagined the event think that Mary went into labor on her first night in Bethlehem. I want you to notice that Luke does not say that. In fact, he gives the impression that Joseph and Mary had been, at least briefly, in Bethlehem. For it's while they were there that the fullness of time arrives. And as we consider Mary beginning to labor, many of us start thinking about her situation. Now, home births are becoming quite trendy, aren't they? 
It was the norm, of course, for millennia. But with home births, amidst all the discomforts that are present, we imagine the comforts of home. However, giving birth, not just away from home in a hospital or a birthing center, but giving birth in someone else's home, well, that's an overwhelming thought. What about privacy? Who knows what to do or how to help? Luke doesn't give us the details. But he does tell us at the end of verse 7 that this birth was not in a comfortable place. Now, an angry innkeeper with a no vacancy sign and rough words for Joseph is almost burned into the psyche of the Christmas story, right? Yet, friends, that's really just another way our imaginations have totally run away from the details of the text. The word for inn in verse 7, there was no room in the inn, is not envisioning Bethlehem's best B&B or even a Motel 6. Inn is actually a very unhelpful translation. If this were an inn as in a hotel, Luke would have used the word he will use in Luke chapter 10 in the Good Samaritan parable when that Samaritan puts up the beaten and bloodied Jew in an inn or a hotel that he would recover. This word is different. This is the same word used in Luke 22 of the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper with His disciples. The inn is a guest room. It's a room in a house where travelers would find lodging. And most likely, Joseph had sought a space in the guest room of a family house, family he was connected to. Now, I'm speculating here, but Jewish males had to go to Jerusalem three times a year at the annual feast. We actually hear more about that in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is 12. But I'm sure that Joseph had family connections, so he stayed at Bethlehem here. But on this occasion, probably due to the demands of the census, with all these family members coming back, they ran out of room. In fact, the definite article, there was no place for them in the in may suggest that Joseph only had one option. He's not walking around, knocking on doors in Bethlehem, asking for somebody to give him a room. There was one spot for potential privacy, and that spot is already taken. Ponder the profundity here, even without the angry innkeeper. Mary had been told this child that she carried was the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the King. Already we're getting a sense of the language of the union between God and man. Emmanuel taking flesh, born in the line of David. And surely with the arrival of such a glorious guest, the best accommodations possible would be secured, right? Even if we're not talking about a palace, there would be a special room, Didn't Isaiah 40, Malachi 3 speak of a voice crying out in the wilderness and saying, prepare ye the way? Now, the prophets no doubt meant make spiritual preparation. But while every heart should be preparing him room, there is no room at all. It's a display of the humiliation attending the birth of Jesus. You see, our Lord, though He's worthy of the greatest fanfare imaginable, sprawling room, a warm and servant-laden spot, a cushy bed for His birth, fireworks that go off. None of that occurs. 
the king of glory has arrived, but he's born in obscurity, born amidst trouble and pressures with no fanfare. It recalls really the birth of Moses, who Moses was spared by his parents when Pharaoh was trying to kill all the infant Hebrew children. In other words, it's a really uncomfortable situation. And that's true here. But the Lord was willing to be born in this lowly condition. He who is rich has come to be made poor for our sakes. Friends, just how rich is He? Well, in John's Gospel, John 12, Jesus describes, you remember that scene in Isaiah chapter 6, where the seraphim are surrounding the throne of God, shouting their perpetual hymn, Holy, 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 and so holy is the Lord before whom they sing, that with two wings they cover their eyes, and two wings they cover their feet. But then Jesus tells us strikingly that the Lord on the throne was the Son of God Himself. Before the moment of this union between the divine nature and the human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary, before the infinite Son of God, without ceasing to be in the form of God, emptied Himself, that is, denied His divine prerogatives and took flesh, when He was a mere growing babe and Mary dependent upon her for life, before the darkness of her womb surrounded Him, He was the subject of angelic hymns. He was dwelling in an unapproachable light. He was full of glory. But now His glory is veiled. Now He is found in the appearance of a man. But not just any man. He's taken the form of a bonser. The lowest of the low. He appears to be a nobody. He is most definitely a somebody. He's the great I Am. But for poor, humble people, He enters a world like this. And here's how the hymn writer put it. We already sang this line. Maybe the most incredible juxtaposition of thought ever penned in poetry. That's quite a statement. God of God, light of light, lo, He abhors not the virgin's womb. This is stunning condescension. It is breathtaking humility. Jesus has come to take on our frailty, our weakness, to share our needs, to walk through deprivation, distress, even death itself, so that we would never be in a place to say, my Savior can't possibly understand my situation. For not only does He enter into the darkness of the womb, He will enter into the darkness of the tomb. That He would shatter it for us and bring light to all of our darkness. He's come to be a sympathetic high priest, to feel our pain. He's come to help the downtrodden, the ruined and broken by the fall. He's come, as Hannah Song once said, to raise the needy from the ash heap. But before He makes us sit with princes, He Himself takes the ash heap, the lowly position. In fact, in our text, things get even lower. Since Joseph and Mary couldn't be in the guest room, They are likely not in a barn itself, but in a common room that is connected to the room for animals. Now, again, we often imagine Joseph having to take Mary out back to the stables. That's not actually how first century Jewish dwellings worked. Ordinarily, homes in this time had three rooms. 
You may have a guest room, which would have its own separate entrance. And there will be a common room, a great room where everything happens in your house. And then connected to your great room would be a stable, an animal enclosure. The stable is right beside the main room so as to allow you to be able to care for your animals without going out into the elements. It gave the animals shelter. Now, there wouldn't be an open consulate floor plan here between the main room and the stable. There would have been some structure preventing the animals from roaming all over the house, maybe pillars, maybe half of a wall, or maybe just feeding troughs to break it up and block the sheep and the goats. Luke doesn't have a a be real on his Instagram page to capture it for us. We don't get pictures for his Facebook. We don't have a complete understanding of the scene. But at the very least, Joseph and Mary would be sleeping in a common room and perhaps they move into the stable portion with a partial wall to give some type of privacy for the birth. Often homes in that time were built into hillsides and caves And that may explain why as early as the second century, we hear that Jesus was born in a cave. Picture the situation. The darling of heaven, the eternal word, is being born into a cold, poorly lit, smelly animal enclosure. And while the Christmas classic Silent night in a moment will be sung. I guarantee you this night was not silent. There was a filthy floor with pungent straw. There was manure lying in various places perfuming the air. There's a cold, hard ground for a bed. There's Mary screaming in labor as a trembling carpenter holds her hand. This is, verse 7, her firstborn Son, she hadn't done this before. Every pregnancy in the ancient world brought great risk, but the anxiety the first time can be extreme. No doubt Mary is clinging to the promise of God through her pain that this one is the Son of God, that the birth will be successful. The Father would get her through it, but that would mean the agony of childbirth vanished. There was blood, human waste, a newborn covered in filth. There was the shrill cry of a baby. There was the urgent need to to get him warm, to nourish him in the midst of Mary's pain. And yet there were tears of joy at the child's arrival. It definitely wasn't a silent scene. And that's not even considering the possibility of the bleeding of sheep. But then we have the little one wailing, longing for warmth. And Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Doesn't the whole scene overwhelm your mind? The Son of God, the One through whom all things were made and needs nothing, He needs the warmth and nourishment of His mother's milk. He holds the world in His hands, but He can be held by the hands of man. What can we say to this? God and man joined in two natures, yet one person without confusion, change, or division. Why would the Lord of glory take this poverty, humiliate Himself in these unimaginable ways? For despite the life of humiliation that will attend to Jesus all the way to the cross, 
Brethren, the single greatest step in that humiliation is when the eternal Son of God becomes the babe in the manger. He's here clothed in our flesh and blood. He's truly one of us because He's come not to help angels, but to help the sons of Abraham, to bring salvation to us by tasting death for us. And there will be no death as our substitute if there is not first a birth in lowliness like us. But the real emphasis here is on the lowliness. While God is intruding into the world of man and showing that He hasn't abandoned us, that He will secure our salvation, Jesus is willing to deny Himself to the degree that He would be laid in a manger. Having taken flesh, stooped as a helpless babe, He couldn't suddenly object to the bed. How dare you put me in that? No, on the contrary. I want you to think of how fitting this box of wood is for Him. Spurgeon once put it like this, the manger and the cross standing at two extremities of the Savior's earthly life seem most fit the one to the other. At the start of Jesus' earthly life, He is bound and laid in wood. At the end of His earthly life, He will likewise be bound and laid on wood. And in both cases, He submits to His Father's will, sent from the Father's love, that He could rescue those the Father has given Him to redeem. What a scene. Oh, come, let us adore Him. And friend, does this not communicate to us how desperate our need is? How sinful must sin be if the very Son of God would take flesh humiliate Himself like this, substitute His whole life for our redemption. And yet how great the kindness of God that He would give the likes of His own Son for us. Would you not look here at love coming down, love being born, love ready to live for you, love ready to taste your death and turn from your sin and cling to Christ. Would you not adore Jesus for impoverishing Himself? Should not the likeness of Christ blow your mind here? Should not the kindness of the Lord lead you to repentance? Because God is providing us a Savior that we could never produce. If He loved us like this, will I withhold my love from Him? Will I make so little of His mercy that His solution here is really not that radical. That what's going on here is not that big of a deal. Or I truly recognize if man could save himself, none of this would be necessary. But with the birth of Jesus in this way, brethren, a birth in lowly circumstances that we would never design, the Lord is saying to us, I am doing it all. You are desperate for my intervening grace, and I am bringing you what you do not deserve. Do you see your need for grace? Do you recognize your need for a Savior, Jesus, to save you from your sins? Our souls must rest on that child in the manger, our representative, our life, our only hope. Do you trust Him?
There is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. Now friend, if you're here tonight and you've turned to Jesus already, should you not be totally stupefied at your Redeemer's readiness to do whatever is needed to purchase your guilty soul and secure for you a right to heaven? If you're here tonight and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I say to you, seek Him now. This babe in the manger is not merely a weak, helpless child. He is the Lord of all creation. He is God from everlasting. He is the glorious Savior. And He's come to take battle in weakness to the devil and defeat the devil through the cross, that we may have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord our God, we marvel at what You have done in sending Your Son into the likeness of sinful flesh, that He would rescue and ransom those of Adam's race that He would raise up for Himself a people by removing our sins. Lord, we pray that each one of us would be found trusting in Christ, marveling at the greatness of Your gift. And we ask, O Lord, that our love to Jesus would only increase. Lord, help us to see the great hand of Your providence governing all things and to see the profound way in which You are willing to save sinners. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.